Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Royal Irish Academy. Um, before we get, begin this evening, just a few housekeeping tasks. Um, in the unlikely event of an evacuation, there are two fire exits at the back of the room, one on the right and one on the left, and there's one at the front on the left-hand side to this exit here. Um, can I ask you all to please switch off your phones or switch them to silent out of respect for our speaker? Thank you. And now, please be upstanding for the President and the officers of the Royal Irish Academy. So, uh, good evening, uh, incoming members, members, uh, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to Academy House for the first presentation of the 2019-20 Royal Irish Academy Public Discourse Series, sponsored by the law firm Mason, Hayes and Curran. Can I ask the members here present for approval to sign the minutes of the meeting of the 15th of April, 2019? Now, this evening is a little unusual in that we're going to welcome two new members to the Academy. We'll have the formal induction procedure. Um, the two new members are Professors Valeria Nicolosi and Michael Zavarotko. Uh, they were elected members of the Royal Irish Academy on the 16th of March this year, and now we invite them to sign the Academy's role book. So can I ask the new members, please, to stand for the declaration, which will be read by the Secretary. We whose names are underwritten, having been elected members of the Royal Irish Academy for advancing the study of science, polite literature and antiquities, do hereby promise each for himself or herself that we will endeavour to promote the good of said acad academy and to pursue the ends for which the same was founded, that we will be present at the meetings of said academy as often as we conveniently can, especially at the annual elections and upon extraordinary occasions, and that we will observe the statutes and bylaws for the time being of said academy. Please be seated. May, now, may I now invite our new members to come forward with their proposers to sign the role. The science secretary will sign, will uh, read the citations. Valeria Nicolosi is Professor of Nanomaterials and Advanced Microscopy at Trinity College Dublin. She's an expert in high-resolution microscopy, specialising in two-dimensional nanomaterials and their applications to energy storage. 
She has the distinction of being the first Irish person to hold six European Research Council grants and has made numerous presentations supporting women in science and the work of the European Research Council. Michael Zavarocco holds the Bernal Chair of Crystal Engineering and an SFI Research Professorship at the University of Limerick. His research relates to the creation of new metal organic and multi-component pharmaceutical materials aimed at carbon capture, water purification and better medicines. He is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry and the Learned Society of Wales and is co-director of the Synthesis and Solid State Pharmaceutical Centre, SSPC, and SFI funded research centre. And now to tonight's discourse. Uh, the topic is how do we study bats and rats to find the secret of everlasting youth? Uh, our speaker is Professor Emma Teeling, member of the Academy, director of the Centre of Irish Bat Research at University College Dublin. Professor Teeling is an international leader in the cross-cutting fields of mammalian phylogenetics and comparative genomics with particular expertise in bat biology. She established the Laboratory of Molecular Evolution and Mammalian Phylogenetics in 2005 at University College Dublin. She's a founding director of the Centre for Irish Bat Research and is currently head of zoology at UCD. She has developed a unique world-leading research programme where she integrates cutting-edge molecular technology with whole animal wildlife studies to elucidate the molecular basis of evolutionary novelty and biodiversity. She uses this newfound understanding to benefit society, both from an environmental and human health perspective. Since 2005, she's been awarded and managed over 5 million euro in research grants, including three of the most competitive personal grants, European Research, grant, European research Council Starting Grant, Science Foundation Ireland President of Ireland Young Researcher Award, and most recently, an Irish Research Council Consolidator Laureate Award. In recognition of her scholarship and research excellence, she has been awarded a Chevalier des Palmes Académique in 2017 by the French government and elected to the Royal Irish Academy in 2016. Professor Teeling is dedicated to raising public awareness of science. Through her online TEDx talk, The Secret of the Bat Genome, she has reached an audience of over 500,000 people. I now invite Professor Teeling to address us.
first of all, I want to say thank you for inviting me here to give a discourse. I really am honored. And second of all, I want to say thank you to the audience. It's a wet, cold Tuesday, and I didn't think we'd see so many people. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to tell you about how you can study nature's wonders to try and address grand challenges that we face today in society. And any of you know, apart from my lab, be quiet now. And if you know what species this is, and if you know what this is, it's a, <laughs> very clever. <laughs> That's not me. This is Crassionictus thanglongii. This is the smallest mammal in the entire world. These are my first PhD student's fingers. This bat was caught the size of a bumblebee, lives on the edge of metabolic existence, and is found only in Thailand, and we found um, a population in Myanmar. But bats are extraordinary animals, and I've spent the, the past 20 years trying to understand the unique adaptations that this group of wonderful mammals actually have, and I have been extraordinarily lucky. And I've spent 20 years trying to understand their evolutionary history, understand how echolocation evolved in mammals, understand how flight evolved in mammals. But the one thing that happens as you study bats is that you realize that they can live for a ridiculously long time that they've evolved ways of slowing down aging. Now, I'm going to talk today about how you could study bats and our rat, you'll have to think about which rat it is, to find ways that we can slow down aging and find ways that we can find these pathways of relevance to humans. But before I start, I'm going to ask you a question. What is aging? So you all know an old human, an old dog. You can recognize it. So it's the most recognized phenomenon that happens in biology, but it's extremely complex. And we still to this day don't really know what happens to drive the aging process. A dictionary definition is aging is a process of intrinsic, progressive, and generalized physical deterioration that occurs over time, beginning at about the age of reproductive maturity. So that means you reach puberty, you start to die. Essentially, is what that means. But what happens? What drives aging? What drives the fact that living, metabolizing, causes us to break down? So it's very, very inherently complex. Lots of different things break down in your cell. And it was in 2013 that Otin published this paper where he classified aging to nine broad categories. And you can see they're very, very complex. Look at genomic instability. So something causes your genome to break down. The raw material that tells your cells how to work starts to break down as you age. Your telomeres, protective caps on the ends of your chromosomes, they start to be degraded down, causes aging. You have the idea your mitochondria stop functioning. Things that produce the energy in your cell that can cause damage get damaged by what they produce. And also what happens is that you can't necessarily detect nutrients in the right way. So all of these things, lots of different things at the cellular level, start to break down as you age. But whether they drive aging or are a result of aging, we don't know. So aging is very, very complex. But right now, it is a grand challenge that we need to understand how we age so we can understand how we can age more healthily and why. So right now, it's predicted that a baby born today, she is going to live till she's approximately 150 years of age. And she's Japanese. 
This is the predictions. Now, what's happening is that globally, all of our populations, we are all living longer worldwide. By 2050, it's estimated there will be a 380% increase in people over the age of 80. Now, this sounds wonderful. We're all going to live for a very long time. But the problem is this, is that your probability and my probability of acquiring disease of the old age, cancer, Alzheimer's, dementia, arthritis, has still stayed the same, and that's at 60. So even though we can live much longer, we can't live healthily much longer. So we need to find, we need to understand aging so we can find ways to increase our health span to match our lifespan. Because if we don't, do we want this future? Do we want a future full of the incapacitated elderly? Because it's going to change society. We're going to have to manage and look after all our elderly people. And as I'm getting older, I'm getting worried about this. But do we want this future? Now, healthier into your 80s. We still can't change the age of menopause, so this is a, a little misleading. But still, we need to think ways. We are living longer. Wouldn't it be so much better if we could all live healthier longer? If we could decrease our morbidity? But what do we know about right now how you stop or slow down aging? What drugs do we have out there? Well, right now, the most effective way of slowing down the aging process is to starve. This is a Caleri project. This is individuals that eat less than 400 calories a day. It's been shown that they potentially um, have much better bodily functions. They have not, no testosterone and don't produce sperm, but everything else is healthy. You could achieve this also by running extreme marathons. So you can extend your lifetime by two years, but you will be running for two of those years. We have drugs on the market right now, which are rapamycin and metformin. These are two drugs that are originally for di diabetics. Because somehow what they do, they act as these starvation mimetics. So they seem to have the same effect that starvation does, inhibit mTOR pathways, but you don't have to starve. But again, we don't yet know how much of this dosage should we give to people, or are they really safe? And the other one that I quite like is resveratrol, red wine. Again, what doses should you take to increase your lifespan? I don't know. Another very interesting study is they found that if you took an old mouse and you sewed up and linked this old mouse, all the blood vessels, to a young mouse, the old mouse got younger. But they don't tell you that the young mouse also got older. And they argued that this was because of a protein called GDF11. However, lots of researchers trying to isolate this protein have now found that actually this protein drives frailty in humans, so still we don't quite know what's going on. And there's a huge big market right now in the US and California where you can get young blood and put it into you. Apparently Mick Jagger changes his blood every three to six months. But again, so there's money in this. Indeed, there's an awful lot of startup companies right now in Silicon Valley that are working to try and find ways to slow down the aging process to increase our health span to match our lifespan. And it's been estimated that just a two-year delay in the aging process would result in a $7 trillion savings in over 50 years. So again, aging costs us money. So it wouldn't be much better if we could age more slowly. But how do we do this? So ultimately, our grand challenge is to find ways to live healthier longer. Now, this is Methuselah. 
Methuselah is a biblical character estimated to have lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. So this is a record for the oldest living individual. But the scientific record for the oldest living individual is Jeanne Calmont. You can see, you can't see here, but she was 122. She died at 122. And this is the limit of human lifespan at the moment. And what we are right now, you, can, you can't read these very well, but what we're trying to do right now, here's the onset of morbidity, frailty, disease of the old age. What we're trying to do right now is move that into later times so we can extend our health span. That will result in extended lifespan, and we can keep going. So 122 is the limit right now of humans. And she only went blind when she was 121. I think she smoked until she was 102. She ate chocolate. She drank red wine. She did all the things you're not supposed to do. But she got really good genes because both sets of grandparents lived way longer than expected as well. So what is our grand challenge right now for healthy aging? What are our major roadblocks? Now, why can't we overcome this? Well, the major, major roadblocks has been what Aubrey de Grey calls that we are living in a pro-aging trance. That means that we think we cannot understand aging, that we, ca we think that we cannot find ways to slow it down. We think it's a natural phenomenon, so therefore, why would you bother? I'm going to argue that this is nuts. We can find ways. We were able to get penicillin to try and uh, cure disease. If we can go and find ways to alleviate the diseases of aging, that would be much better for society. And only now, in 2018, has aging been recognized as something that causes disease. Now, what that means, that means that drugs targeted anti-aging are now going to be able to be designed and research could be done on this. So we're moving forward right now. The other problem is I'm going to argue that we have been studying aging the wrong way all of the time. And this is where the bats come in. This is where being a zoologist helps me. So the way aging is typically studied is that you have a model organism. So you have a lab mouse, you have a nematode, you have um, a, a fly, and you can study them in the lab. And you study individuals as they age year after year after year after year, and you can sample them as they age. And studying aging in things that are short-lived, can live from, say, one to four years, allows aging human biologists study aging which gives you can study lots and lots of generations and understand the aging process with a view that maybe you can tweak something and see can they live longer. And what we find when you study these model organisms is that the aging process, it's highly regulated and it's conserved right across the tree of life. Now what that means, is that means that you can study aging in things that maybe can age better and inferences that you find from a different species can pertain then to humans. So a lot of work, a magnificent work has been done trying to understand aging. But these species are short-lived. Many of them are inbred. We are long-lived and we're outbred. And the reality is, really, I think we've been studying the wrong species. We're studying species that have, are, are very good at dying. They're not very good at living. And so if you want to try and study species to understand how can we extend our health span, shouldn't you study species that have naturally evolved longer health spans? And I say there's more to life than rats and flies because as a zoologist, this is something that I have to argue quite a lot. And really, these species are this beautiful creature here. It's a brown, long-eared bat, Lacosaurus. So bats are extraordinary mammals. They're the only mammals that fly. 
But they do something else very interesting. So here is this longevity ratio. So this is the ratio of expected body mass to actual expected, long, expected lifespan to actual lifespan given body mass. Now the reason for this is there's nearly a law in nature. Small things, they live fast and they die young. Big things live slow and they live long. So think of a small thing. Think of a shrew or a mouse. No mouse is ever going to live longer than four years. Think of a big thing, such as a bowhead whale. They hold the record. They live over 200 years. And that's what's supposed to happen. But bats book this trend. Indeed, there are 19 species of mammal that we know live longer than humans, and 18 of these are bats. One of these is this little blue dot here I'm going to talk about later. These are the naked mole rats. One species of rodent that does that. So this means that bats must have naturally evolved extended health spans. Now the bat that holds the record is this Myotis branti. This bat was caught as an adult and then caught now 43 years later. Now what's extraordinary is not that it's 43 years later. What's extraordinary is that this bat weighs one third that of a lab mouse living 10 times longer than expected, and that itself is extraordinary. So studying bats, trying to understand the evolution of flight and echolocation and other cool things they do, we realize that bats have obviously evolved mechanisms to defy the aging process. And so I thought long and hard, how are we going to do this? How are we going to study bats in an aging context? So. Lucky enough, I wrote an ERC grant working with a fantastic team of researchers um, from my lab, from France, or Brittany Vivant. And we decided to design a project for why we could study wild bats as an alternative model system to uncover the molecular pathways that underlie extraordinary aging in mammals. How do you do this? So it's not easy. And I'm going to show you a picture. I just want you to watch and I'll talk through. So what we do is, first of all, we had to find a population of long-lived bats. A population of bats that we could sample year after year after year. A population of bats that were large enough that we could take samples and not kill them. A population that we would be able to, again, sample every single year, year after year. And we worked with Britannia Vivant, which is a grassroots organization in France that had been studying this population for about 20 years. And they'd caught these bats as babies starting in 2010, and they had put a little microchip in the back of the bat. The only way you can age a bat is you catch them as a baby, and their finger bones are not fused. Within three to six months, those finger bones are fused, and you can't age them at all. And so by putting a little transponder into the babies, we know that when we catch that individual again, we caught it first in 2010, we catch it again in 2018, that bat's eight. We're able to identify them and work with these bats. And if we go to Brittany every year, we pack a mobile lab from UCD, go down to Wexford, go over to France, spend a month of hectic madness in France, trying to understand and catch these bats year after year after year, take these samples and work out what are they doing to slow down the aging process. So the difficulty came, first of all, if you want to work with these non-model organisms, you've got to find the right population. Can you recapture them? Second, you've got to realize they bite and they fight, and long-lived species will be quite aggressive because they want to live. And so you've lots and lots of different steps you have to take, and then we feed them. They're very hungry creatures. We feed them afterwards, and they live. The other thing you have to do is you have to try and say, well, what type of markers, what type of genes can we look at? 
And most of these assays were designed on humans and designed on mice. So in my lab, we had to modify them to be able to work with bats, completely different species. So we decided to look at certain modulators of aging. And I'm, don't worry too much about what this is. So we looked at telomeres. Telomeres are like the aglets at the end of your shoelaces. They protect the chromosomes. We started to look at the mitochondria. These are the engines of the cell. Again, engines produce things that are bad, that break up the cell. Think of what goes on with your own car. You produce a whole bunch of noxious outputs and emissions. So again, by the cell metabolizing, produces a whole bunch of ROS. This ROS can, this ROS can then break up the mitochondria, break up the cell, cause damage and cause aging. We wanted to see, well, did bats have a way of modulating and protecting their cells from telomere shortening, from mitochondrial damage? We also wanted to sequence the entire blood transcriptome. As we age, you find that the message from your genes becomes dysregulated. And this dysregulation can drive the aging process. Did bats find a way of stopping this dysregulation? And if they did, how? We also looked at the microbiome. As you know now, we are all full of bacteria. And the idea is, could their microbiome remain static as they age? They find a way of stopping this age-related change in their microbiome. We looked at autophagy. Now, what is autophagy? It's the ability of the cell to remove cellular damage. If the cell doesn't remove cellular damage, what happens is that cell becomes aged. It excites the immune system and, again, drives the aging process. Are they better able to remove the damage that they experience from their very, very high metabolic rate? Remember, bats fly. They have the highest metabolic rate of all mammals. And also, we want to look at their innate immunity. As we age, we become inflamed. This is a result of, really, the damage, potentially, that's driven by metabolism. Do bats find a way of somehow modulating their innate immunity to allow them have their high metabolic rate and live much longer. I'm going to give you an example from the telomeres. So again, what are they? So telomeres are these TTA GGG repeats on the ends of your chromosomes. And they're the aglets, the protective caps. Again, your chromosomes, remember you get 23 from mom and 23 from dad. They're in your nucleus. That's where your DNA is. That's a blueprint for how your cells should function. So what happens is that Every time your cells replicate, you do this, and you make more cells, what happens is that you, your telomeres shorten. They shorten because there's a problem, and the problem is that we cannot extend at one end of the chromosome. So it was argued that the, li the lifespan of species should be limited by the length of their telomeres. So what happens is your telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter every time the cell replicates, and then all of a sudden, they get to a critically short length, and that cell becomes old. Now, what the body should do is they should remove that cell, senescent cell, take it away. Because if the senescent cell isn't removed, if it doesn't go into its self-destruct mode, it sits there. It becomes very old, and it starts to emit this sasp, and it starts to make other cells more like it. They become zombie cells, and this increases the aging process. And so what you want to see in these long-lived bats did they find a way of maintaining their telomeres with age? What were they doing? And so Nicole Foley was a PhD, my student, who led this. We designed this molecular method in our lab based on what was done in humans. We found this relative assay that in the lab, you find that you get your signal here early. In your QPCR, you've got a long telomere. If you get it here, you've got a short telomere. Believe me, this thing here took about two years to make. It's quite difficult, but we made it work. So telomere assays that worked in humans were able to develop to make it work in our bats.
We also had our population of long-lived bats because what we were doing is we were taking three millimeter wing biopsy punches, the minimum amount of DNA. So we weren't lethally sampling these bats. That meant that we could go work with other people who've been doing these long-term mark recapture projects that have been studying these bats maybe for 60 years. So we could find some of the oldest, longest-lived of the longest-lived bats. And working together, we had we found populations of long-lived bats in France, in Germany, in England. Roger Ransom, for 60 years, since he was a little boy, was going to this colony in this big old uh, Woodchester mansion and studying these bats, ringing them, tagging them. He knows the day they're born. He knows the day they died. And this is the type of effort that has to go into a project like this. We also were working with groups in Portugal. They've been studying bats since the 1980s. So if you want to study bats in an aging context, or anything really that you can't have in the lab. You need two things. You have to have a longitudinal mark for capture field studies. Catch them as a baby, release them, catch them again so you can study them. That's critical. And you also have to have new molecular methods. So you have to be open to all these things. So what did we find? What's going on with these bats? Well, first of all, they're telomeres. What we found that in bats, in the longest lived genera of bats, the myotis bats, their telomeres did not shorten with age. Now, this is extraordinary, because in the majority of everything else, including us, it does. So no matter what we do, we did with our statistical analysis, we couldn't get them to shorten. We found that this shortening wasn't as a result of the expression of telomerase. Anybody who studies cancer or knows anything about cancer cells knows that they switch on this enzyme called telomerase that allows these cells to extend their telomeres making them essentially immortal. But they were able to extend their telomeres without this expression of this enzyme, which we know causes cancer in our non-eggersperm cells. We did a whole bunch of evolutionary analysis, looking at genomes of bats and lots of other mammals for genes involved in maintaining telomeres. We found that potentially there was two genes that were driving this, and that bats had evolved this new alternative telomere lengthening mechanism, which allowed them to maintain the length of their telomeres, so maintain those aglets on the end of their chromosomes without getting cancer. There was little to no records of cancer ever in bats. So that was extraordinary. When we looked at their mitochondria, remember their engines? We wanted to see whether they were producing a high amount of this um, discharge, should I say, a high level of ROS. So these emissions from the engine that breaks up the engine. And the idea was that bats challenged this idea, this free radical theory of aging. They were choosing a hell of a lot of free radicals, but they were not showing the same effect. They found ways to protect their engine from this ROS. So they evolved ways to potentially repair or remove their damage. This is going to be kind of, they find ways to maintain homeostasis. When we looked at their innate immune genes, we looked at the genes that allow them and allow them to potentially fight infection. We want to see, well, where bats do they show a higher level of anti-inflammatory markers? We were able to, we had an opportune chance, and you have to take this in science. There was a female bat, a baby. She was born, but she'd lost her wing. So we had to ethically euthanize her because you can't kill our wildlife. We were able to work with Luke O'Neill, and we washed out bat stem cells used mouse-stimulating colony factor. And what we were able to do was isolate bat immune cells generate them from stem cell, from bone marrow, and we challenge them to see what would happen in infection. And what we found is that here's a mouse. 
these are these pro-inflammatory. Pro Imagine that this is a balance. Mice have a high, much higher level of pro-inflammation. Bats have a much higher level of anti-inflammation, and we compare the two. So it looks like bats were very, very quickly able to return to homeostasis. So we simulated infections, looked at how these bat immune cells responded, and we found that they could mount a really aggressive pro-inflammation response to knock out potential pathogen, and they could very quickly dampen that. They found a way to maintain their cells. Why is this important? I'm not going to talk about it now, but something else to think about. Bats also have a very unique immunity. They carry Ebola, rabies, SARS, MERS, Marburg. That sounds like a horror story, but it's not, because they have naturally evolved tolerance to it. We don't have that. So by studying how bats can tolerate these diseases, we can understand what we need to do to tolerate these diseases. And I believe the longevity is also linked to this. Also, we looked at their mi bat microbiome. Now, of all of the things that our volunteers do, they didn't like having to stick little, um, little tiny mascara brushes up bat bottoms. The bats didn't seem to mind um, at all, actually. And so what we found is that, again, as we looked at the bacteria found in the microbiome, there didn't seem to be any age effect. So again, bats are very good at maintaining themselves with age. They find a way to not age, to maintain their homeostasis. But all of these are looking at individual markers on their own. So what we need is a much more integrative approach. So we were just looking at different markers. And again, think about aging. It's a holistic point of view. So Zaja, who's down here, we developed a method. Could we go and sequence all of the genes that are expressed in bats, in bat blood, from a teeny tiny amount for less than two drops? So we had to try and design assays to work with teeny tiny samples we could take. We didn't want to bleed the bats like vampires. We had to live. And we worked out ways that you could actually sequence all of the message of the genes that are found in bat blood. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to study young, middle-aged, and older bats and look at the regulation of those genes, sequence the message. What we wanted to do is we wanted to try and see, could we uncover the actual mechanisms that controlled these unique attributes you see in the long-lived bats. So we looked at these things, they're called transcriptomes, the transcript, the transcript of all the genes is going to make these proteins. So we looked at the transcript, saw how they changed with age in bats. We then looked at these little things called myrnomes, so these little teeny tiny genes, they're, they're microRNAs that regulate how genes are turned on and turned off with age. Because what we want to try and find was the underlying regulatory mechanisms and we wanted to see, could we find what were the adaptations of life extension that bats evolved? So just to show you, don't worry about this, I'll talk you through this. We looked at 100 different bats, sampled from zero age, they were the babies, up until seven plus. This was an adult cot six years before. Could have been seven, could have been 34. So we fixed them right across the age cohort. We randomly looked at the expression of all of the genes, and we decided to see, well, which genes were expressed together? So could we look at the pathways? We were interested to see, well, how do these change with age in bats? Could we correlate the change with age? We targeted a whole bunch of genes that either went up in expression or down in expression with age or stayed the same. We then also wanted to see, well, what were these little microRNAs that potentially could control this? So what did we find? 
So when you initially look, these are all our bats, and these different triangles and so forth, these different shapes, are the, the overexpression of genes that may change with age. And what you can see is that depending on the different colors or the different ages, they all overlap. There doesn't seem to be any major expression, age expression change in genes with age in bats. And you can see this here too. The major difference was between a baby and a one or two year old. Now that makes sense because by the time they're one or two, they're having babies themselves. So that's the major change. But after two, we saw no change. And why this is extraordinary is when you look at long-lived mouse, this is a mouse that's about, to about 30 months old, you can see this huge change. You can see an age effect. What was exquisite was we were able to then look at this paper that was published, Nature Communications in 2018, where they also looked at the expression changes in blood transcriptomes of humans and rats, or humans and mice, should I say, and a wolf. And we looked at particular genes, and we wanted to see well, what would happen in bats as they age. What we found, so here in red, means there's an increase in that type of gene with age. And blue means there's a decrease with age. And you can see bats here are showing a very different profile than all these other mammals. And what this profile is, it shows that they increase the maintenance of their DNA as they age. And we do not. And mice do not. So the ability to be able to fix the damage to your DNA, bats do that. I was most extraordinary. This is the stuff that I loved. So I showed Luke O'Neill this picture. He goes, yeah, yeah, so, so what? And look at this now. So it was always argued, could you really study bats in an aging context? So what we found was that we looked at, there's certain things you have to do to a mouse or to a nematode to make it live longer. For example, what you have to do is you have to um, put two copies of this P10 gene into a transgenic mouse and it lives longer. And so what bats, if you look just right here, bats, so this is P10, and this is as the bats age, and they naturally increase the expression of this gene with age. This is what you have to do to a model organism to make it live longer. You see the same thing with MYC, they have to decrease it. If you want to make these mice live longer, you, in a lab, make it less express, this gene. So our methods showed that bats, we could find known life extension methods by using our kind of a bit ad hoc, crazy field biology method. So this was extraordinary. But again, Luke said, you know, so what? So we already know that. I said, well, okay. We said, well, we wanted to see, well, all right, can we find genes that show a very different expression in bats and humans, wolves and mice, we did. What the extraordinary part is that we found new candidates. We found new genes. So we have proof of concept that our methods work. We found proof of concept that studying bats, wild bats, in an evolutionary context will allow us uncover potential new targets. What we also found were these microRNAs that regulated it. And so, yes, we find here this is what happens. You get increase, these decrease. But this is actually what regulates it. And if you want to make something translatable, you need to find what you have to modify to regulate it. So it's very powerful. But microRNAs are very tricky to work with. So what you have to do, so you've got to go out into the field, you've got to use knowledge from working with humans and mice, known molecular techniques. You have to have these long-term field studies where you know the ecology, the behavior of these organisms. You also then need to go and use, have an evolutionary perspective. But we now need to try and validate our findings in the lab. And that's where we're at. But to recap, 
How do bats defy the aging process? What do they do? They repair their DNA as they age. They repair the damage. They're able to remove their damage. They increase their autophagy. So they remove damage. They maintain their telomeres, their aglets, and they also have this balance of unity. So they don't go into this hyper-aging inflammation that we see. And potentially, it's modulated by these microRNAs. So we now have new targets. But as my reviewers like to say, so what? Who cares? We're not bats. How is this going to work? Have you actually gone crazy? Etc., etc., etc. So the question is right now we've found what's going on in bats. But is it a wild leap of faith to think that we can translate that into human biology? And I'm going to say no. And I'm going to tell you why no. But this is this beautiful creature here. This is the naked mole rat. That was that blue dot that I showed you. The only other non-bat mammal that lives longer than humans. Very, very strange. It's a subterranean um, rodent. It acts really like a, an ant or termites with the queen suppressing all of the other workers, the queen having all of the babies. But it lives up to 31 years, which is 10 times longer than any rodent should. It's impervious to pain. It seems to be able to withstand having no oxygen for 13 to 15 minutes. And it lives much longer than it should. It's extremely resistant to cancer. And what they've shown that in the naked mole rat, because they've been studying naked mole rats now for about 20 years in an aging context, so they've been doing this for a little bit longer. And what they've found is that naked mole rats produce a huge level of this hyaluronic acid, or hyaluron. You'll all know what hyaluronic acid is. Cosmetic energy gone nuts. And it's argued that the hyaluronic acid is really good at repairing your skin. It's supposed to be extremely good, potentially, at slowing down cancer. So it's argued that the hyaluronic, the hyaluron, allows the naked mole rats to compress these cancer cells. It's very difficult to get a naked mole rat to make a, a, a naked mole rat have cancer. So the hyaluron suppresses the cancer. So how are we going to translate this? So what they're doing at the moment? Here's a naked mole rat. Here's this hyaluron. What they've done is they've made transgenic mice to make this mouse express the genes that we now know are allowing naked mole rats to produce a high level of hyaluronic acid. We want to see that if you try and make this mouse get cancer, does it live longer? Is it more resistant to cancer? And if it does, so we're at this stage here with the naked mole rats, we're then going to make drugs that will modulate these pathways in humans. They're the same pathways. Remember I showed you with the tree of life, they're conserved. So if we can work out what we got to do, what are these long-lived species, these extraordinary, exceptionally long-lived species doing to slow down the aging process? We can then go find ways, we can validate that it works in the lab, and then find the drugs to do that. I don't mean genetic engineering, that's going to take too long, but you can take drugs to modify a pathway. Think of rapamycin, think of metformin. So here's our grand challenge. Right now we're here, 122. Wouldn't be much better to be 150 having the time of your life. I have two question marks here because you do have these transhumanists that really believe that you can maybe extend human life to all existence. It's all about rejuvenation, but that's for another talk. So I hope I've showed you tonight that by studying bats, we can uncover 
the molecular mechanisms that enable mammals achieve extraordinary longevity. That really we need to look to nature, but integrate it with state-of-the-art molecular technology. Again, we have to bring zoology with molecular biology. We're going to have to think about clinicians, medical doctors, to try and address this question. And that aging can be solvable. I want to thank my amazing lab, without whom we couldn't do any of this, all my brilliant collaborators from all around the world, the ERC, the IRC, and also the UCD Wellcome Trust Fund. And again, thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you very much, Emma. Uh, I'd now like to invite Professor Marina Lynch to respond. Well, that's a little bit mean, isn't it, to respond to a talk like that? But anyway, here I am, so I've got to do something. That was amazing, Emma. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so Emma identified for us what the very big challenge is, and it's to add life to years rather than to add years to life. So we have to start thinking about how we're going to do this, and of course we've got some very good guidance here. But I'd what I'd like to do is, is just throw out a few thoughts to you. So um, the first thing is that we're very concerned now, and all politicians are very concerned, rightly so, about what's happening and what's coming down the track. We know that there's going to be a huge increase in the number of people that are going to age um, and live much longer in the next little while. So right now, it's the first time that the number of people over age 65 outnumbers the number of children less than five years of age. And we know one in eight people are going to be 65 years or older in 2050. Um, and that is even going to be worse in Europe and in the US, where it's going to be down to one, or one in four or one in five. And of course, the number of people over the age of 80 is going to escalate hugely, and the estimates are that it'll be somewhere around about 427 million people worldwide over 80 years of age. So the big thing is not necessarily to extend life, but to identify ways in which we can make the health span better. So one of the things that's kind of interesting is to consider what are the things that are killing people now top 10 causes of death and compare them with what was the case maybe hundreds or so years ago. So the top 10 or the top five, I'm going to talk about the top five causes of death right now are number one, heart disease, number two, cancer. And between those two, they cause 46% of all deaths in the US. Then number three, is stroke, four is lung disease and five, is Alzheimer's disease. Now, 100 years ago, Alzheimer's disease didn't even feature. And we know the reason why. Because Alzheimer's disease is actually a, a disease where the biggest risk factor is age. Only about 5% of individuals with Alzheimer's disease uh, have the genetic form. So as the population uh, gets older, the likelihood of the increase in the population with Alzheimer's disease also increases. But a hundred years ago, the big killers were pneumonia, influenza, TB, and the like. In other words, infectious diseases. So what do we take from this? 
Well, the Centre for Control and Prevention of Diseases, I haven't got that right, but anyway, it will do. Um, the, uh, CDC is the right uh, term for it. But they have suggested to, to us, and they're absolutely right, that the top five killers of today are things that are mod uh, modifiable by uh, health choices, by lifestyle choices. And they suggest that you should do three things, three very simple things, to improve your health span rather than your lifespan. One, take more exercise. Two, eat more healthily. Now, not starve yourself like those poor, miserable individuals, <laughs> um, because I don't know if it's worthwhile living if you're only eating 400 calories a day. Certainly, my life wouldn't be worth living. Um, uh, but but um, the other thing is stop smoking. Three very simple things that they say will make a huge difference to um, uh, the lifespan of individuals. Okay, so I think it's, it's uh, worthwhile just thinking about a few very odd bits of information that, that appear in um, the literature every now and again. One, in uh, 2003, a, a report appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, a very, very highly regarded journal, and that journal told us that if you dance, as opposed to any other form of exercise, if you dance, your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease is reduced by 76%. And they said that the reason why dancing is better than walking or running or any of those other things is that, that, there, that you first have to link with somebody. So there's an interaction going on. Number two, you have to think about what your feet are doing. You have to listen to the music. And there's all this stuff going on in the brain. In other words, there are many, many bits of the brain that are being stimulated all at the same time. And at the same time, you still have to think. You have to think what you did before and what you're going to be doing next. So dancing, let's all begin. Even if you begin at 60 plus, it's good news. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, um, for the more sedate individuals, it turns out that gardening is also very good. Now, gardening doesn't stop Alzheimer's disease, but what, does, what it does do is it improves your, uh, or, sorry, it decreases your likelihood of getting stroke. So that's good. And heart disease. So maybe if you're not interested in the cha-cha-cha or whatever, <laughs> then um, maybe gardening might be a good thing. Okay, so now I'm going to just park that for a little bit and I'm just going to consider um, the theories of ageing. I read to my absolute amazement and horror, both I think, that there are over 300 theories of ageing proposed. I mean, is that not daft? But anyway, scientists have been grappling with how to put some sense into this 300 plus theories of ageing. And there are two theories that are two groups of theories, I suppose, that, that reach the surface in that quagmire. And one is the program theory, which suggests that everything is programmed, that there's a sort of a clock there, and that genes that are normally good for um, uh, protecting you stop being expressed to the same extent. Now, bats clearly have the ability to fool the system. How that's done is a really important question, and maybe we're going to find that out from Emma very, very soon. Um, the other thing is that the immune system starts to wind down a little bit. Every cell in the immune system stops being as effective, and there's a real good example of this, a very simple one that everybody probably knows about. When you immunize an older person, they don't react as well 
In other words, they're not as well protected as when you immunize a young person. So other parts of the system start to break down as well. Then there's the second bunch of theories, sort of wear and tear theories. And I'm going to just pick two things to make reference to. And one Emma very beautifully told us about, that is the telomere shortening. Well, there's the enzyme telomeres, telomerase, sorry, I beg your pardon, that uh, was identified and in fact uh, got the Nobel Prize for a woman called Elizabeth Blackburn, who was from Tasmania. And um, what, what she uh, discovered was, well, in the course of her, her collaborations, she met up with somebody who was a clinical psychologist. And this clinical psychologist said to her one day, what do you think might be the effect on the telomere length of a person who was persistently stressed? And so they undertook this experiment um, of carers who were looking after children that had very significant diseases that required 100% care. And they extended it later on to a group of people who were looking after spouses with Alzheimer's disease. And in both situations, the carers were under extreme stress. And it was unrelenting stress. And so what they did was just had a look at the telomere length, and they found that, sure enough, these individuals, the carers that were under terrible stress, actually had shorter telomeres than they than matched people, if you can match someone to this situation. Not only that, but the enzyme was uh, active in a different way. But what Elizabeth and her colleagues found out was that 12 minutes of meditation a day had a huge impact on these individuals. And the very first thing that these individuals learned about their 12 minutes meditation a day, they could also listen to music, but I don't think that was quite as effective. And um, what they found was that these people didn't look on their job as a carer as much a stress as a challenge. And the people rose to the challenge. It's a little bit like dancing when you're 85, perhaps. So you rise to the challenge, and you don't call it a stress anymore. And it's a completely different situation. Now, they went on and, and studied people with Alzheimer's disease, interestingly enough. And there's now a lot of people that believe that the length of the telomere can give you some hints about the, uh, about the likelihood of a person developing Alzheimer's. We'll find out about that later on. Now, the second theory that I'm going to just mention, and Emma mentioned it as well, is the theory that of free radical theory of aging. This was proposed by a guy called uh, Denham Harman, and he proposed it in uh, 1954, but even then there were fights in the scientific community because people claimed that another woman called Elizabeth Schumann actually um, identified the, the, the nuts and bolts of it beforehand. However, he was a, a, a chemist in Shell Oil, and one day he came home from his dinner in, for his dinner in 1945, and of course his good wife Helen was there making the dinner, and she showed him an article that appeared in, I think it was called, The Ladies' Journal. And the lady, this article referred to longevity, and this sparked his interest. And this guy gave up his job in Shell and became a doctor and started to work on this idea that the oxidative species that are produced by those mitochondria that Emma referred to are the things that cause damage. Now, there are a lot of people that argue bits and pieces about this theory. But 
I still think there's a huge amount of sense in it because the thing about these reactive oxygen species is that they damage every single component of the cell. They damage lipids and so they mess up membranes. They damage proteins and mess up protein function and they mess up DNA. I'm thinking to myself after listening to Emma and her, her fantastic description of the, the, the adaptations that these moles are, uh, sorry, that these, these uh, bats can make, that we must have an idea of how we can limit the damage that is done by the reactive oxygen species. The answer is there. Now, I have to say, I take great issue with what Emma thinks is beautiful. I have hardly ever seen in my life an uglier creature than that naked mole rat. <laughs> However, with that, I will, will uh, finish and I will say thank you so much to Emma um, for such a wonderful discourse and for giving us so much food for thought and for thinking in a very different way about that ugly, ugly creature. That that is. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you very much. So now we invite Emma back to the podium and we uh, open to questions from the floor.